This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey there, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Best bits from Monday, February the 13th. Coming up, Stephen Bainbridge was kind enough to join us uh, on Super Bowl morning. Uh, in fact, he gave up the last couple of minutes of the game itself, which came down to those last couple of minutes, uh, to come on in to the studio and tell us more. Steve's a partner and head of sports and events, Middle East at the Squire Patton Boggs Dubai office, keen observer of all things NFL, but also uh, a great guy to come in and tell us about the impact uh, that Super Bowl has, not just on the American market, but the global market as a whole plus uh, how much those ads were selling during Super Bowl this year. We're also joined in studio by the chairman and the managing director of VPS Healthcare, Dr. Shamshir Vailil, joined us live in studio to talk about uh, their 2022 earnings and also outlook for 2023. Uh, Ahmed Barosian is the CEO of Public Transport Agency at the RTA. Ahmed was kind of us to join us a little earlier on in proceedings to give us more details on the uh, air taxis and the vertiports that we got more details and confirmation on uh, over the course of the weekend. Three years is all we'll have to wait uh, before seeing the first the air taxis in the air. So we got more details from the RTA. Uh, plus, the big talker of the day was the World Government Summit, where uh, a number of heads of state uh, and, of course, some of the great and good of the world have come together uh, to discuss a number of different topics. Uh, Jihad Azor, director of IMF's Middle East and Central Asia Department, was there yesterday. His boss was in town as well. Uh, Jihad joined us earlier to discuss some of the big topics that will be discussed at WGS and why it was important for the IMF to be there. So the first official day of the World Government Summit in Dubai this morning. Yesterday was day zero. There was an Arab finance forum, an awful lot of meetings and an opening address from the IMF where the uh, managing director, the IMF boss, Kristalina Georgieva, told world leaders, 20 of them in town for the government summit, plus many other business and and policy leaders as well. Uh, She told them that the world was at something of a turning point. Very pleased to be joined on the line now by a man that I saw yesterday morning at the event, the regional IMF boss, Jihad Azur. Uh, Jihad, it's lovely to speak to you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning to you. Let's start uh, with those comments from your boss, Kristalina Georgieva, um, making headlines as she addressed the uh, World Government Summit gathering yesterday morning, saying that 2023 could be a turning point for the world economy. Talk me through that. Well, exactly. As you know, uh, last year, the world uh, has uh, uh, focused on fighting inflation, focused also on addressing the uh, impact of the war in Ukraine as well as also stabilizing international financial markets. This year, while the monetary policy tightening will remain, which will bring in, uh, growth rates uh, further down in 2023 compared to last year, but there are several signs that could show that 2023 could be a turning point, whereby 24 the outcome will be on the improvement, and this will come from better growth prospects in some of the leading uh, economies of the world, U.S., Europe and uh, also betting on China's recovery. However, this year, despite that turning point, we'll see lower 
economic growth. I know that was a point that you made, particularly about this region yesterday. Well, indeed, the region is diverse. And last year, 2022, was a relatively strong year in terms of economic performance, especially for the oil exporting, in particular GCC, where growth exceeded 7.5%, which is around 70% higher than the average for the last two decades. Of course, this is led by a certain number of measures that were taken during COVID, the reforms that were introduced, and the recovery in oil price as well as also in oil export. This year, we will see uh, some slowdown, which is the trend globally. The fight still to reduce the level of inflation and for emerging markets in the region is to address the financing needs, especially with the tightening. We expect interest rates to go up and capital flows to dry up uh, for, uh, for this year. Uh, globally for EMs and also for the EMs of the region. Yeah, there was a, a call for governments here to, to use fiscal policy and cooperation to try and build some resilience um, against that inflation, against those high debt levels. What do you want to see, Jihad? Well, this year is a year of uncertainties still, uh, and therefore it's very important to have a, a proactive policy measures in order to maintain macroeconomic stability. The first is still... Ma- monetary policy. Tightening interest rate is important in order to reduce the risk of moving into a more entrenched inflation. Two is to use wisely fiscal instruments in oil exporting countries to anchor fiscal into a medium term, especially that uh, the volatility in oil price has showed us in the past that it's very important to manage the oil cycle. And for the rest of the countries in the region, is to shift the uh, fiscal support to be more targeted and more timely in terms of subsidy provided to those who need it. Was there a call yesterday for more tax in the the region? There was quite the discussion about the average tax-to-GDP ratio in hydrocarbon-producing countries. Developing non-oil revenues is very important and has proved during the COVID crisis very instrumental for the oil-exporting countries and here in the GCC. It's a welcome step to reduce dependence on oil and to become less procyclical. Therefore, uh, expanding on, on developing a tax policy that uh, creates a new sources of revenue, establish a modern tax system, both in terms of uh, tax administration and tax policies, and align the region with uh, what I would say the advanced economy frameworks. Of course, what those countries need in terms of uh, fiscal revenues is less. Uh, because of the um, uh, natural resources revenues. But it's still important to develop a, a strong fiscal framework that has also one important leg on the revenue side, on the taxation side. How much of a difference then will the UAE's coming corporate tax make in, in that equation? There was talk about the, the tax GDP ratios for the region as a whole sitting around 11% but needing to be higher. What will corporate tax do for our ratios? Well, as you know, uh, revenues here on the non-oil side are uh, much more service-based, consumption-based. Expanding on the corporate taxation will create, I would say, will level the playing field between different uh, forms of of revenue generations. Uh, Of course, uh, the implementation will be gradual and uh, will build on the achievement that we have done with the implementation of the value-added tax that has helped develop uh, the tax administration, the tax system, and uh, we hope that the utilization of uh, digital services will make this new form of revenues easy to administer and also increase the level of compliance.
There was quite a lot of talk yesterday about the upcoming COP28. No surprise, um, of course, given that it will be held here in the UAE. And also a, a bit of a warning from Ms Gorgieva about government subsidies for green projects. She said uh, that they couldn't just be thrown around willy-nilly. What did she mean? Well, you know, we saw in the past um, where good causes were not served well by bad policies. I think the cause is very important and very good. We need to combine international, official and private sector resources to accelerate uh, the agenda of climate. This agenda of climate is the silver lining and I would say the transformative reform that the world needs and the region can lead in it. Uh, but also it's very important to make sure how you use public interventions. Sometimes trying to be good using the wrong instruments uh, could, uh, you know, at best not achieve the objectives set, but also could harm. So how do governments um, then decide what deserves the money, what deserves the attention? The three priorities today we see for the world and for the region too is adaptation, mitigation, and transition. And this requires a certain number of um, initiatives that the state could lead. This requires also a strategy that is anchored, that allow investors and the private sectors to see through the strategy what opportunities uh, private sector can develop. And last but not the least is to strengthen collaboration and cooperation. And I think here what the UAE has done recently with the agreement with the U.S. for $1 billion joint investment, it's a step in the right direction. Very quickly, 20 seconds, uh, Jihad. What is going to make the next three days of the World Government Summit, the, the first half of this week, a success from your point of view? What needs to happen? The world is facing a risk of fragmentation. I hope that this meeting will be a bridge whereby countries uh, who are currently not seeing eye to eye will find through this uh, World Government Summit an opportunity to speak and find solutions together through institutions and through multilateralism. IMF Regional Head Jihad Azor, thank you for your time. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's get some more details, if we can, on one of the big talkers of the morning, and that is the news that air taxis will begin flying in Dubai within three years. Uh, the announcement coming yesterday from none other than His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, Vice President and Ruler of Dubai, making the announcement on his Twitter feed where he revealed he'd approved the designs for air taxi stations at the World Government Summit here in Dubai, uh, that summit running throughout the course of this week. So uh, a timeline of the next three years before we see air taxis taking to the skies above Dubai. Uh, let's get some more thoughts on this now with the CEO of the Public Transport Agency at the RTA, Ahmed Barosian, who joins us live on the line. Ahmed, thanks so much indeed for your time this morning. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. Pleasure yeah, no, really appreciate it. I know it's a busy time for you and all the team at the RTA. So uh, congratulations first and foremost on this latest announcement. Um, let's get your initial thoughts uh, after the announcement from His Highness yesterday. Well, actually, it's a very exciting project, as you said, and um, we're looking forward to, you know, continuously adding to the ecosystem of mobility in Dubai. Maybe, you know, the last couple of years, the focus has been more on uh, you know, individual or soft mobility, as we call it, you know, bikes. Uh, we've introduced scooters very recently, has been very successful. We, um, you know, in just over a year, we've done 
over a million uh, trips, you know, on the uh, shared scooter service that they introduced. And lately, the focus has shifted a little bit to, towards autonomous and uh, also air mobility. So we announced recently that uh, hopefully autonomous taxis will start operating in Dubai on a small scale initially at the end of this year and grow as we, uh, you know, as, as, as we see fit. And at the same time, we announced yesterday the air mobility um, service. So for those who have been living in Dubai for the last few years, you may remember that in 2017, we did a four-minute trial with an air taxi um, service. It was just four minutes, but it was demonstrate, a demonstration of Dubai's, uh, you know, keen interest to introduce um, urban air mobility solutions to the city. And we've been following the technology ever since. We've been uh, talking to many potential partners, um, we haven't signed with anybody yet, but we are hopefully going to aim towards signing with the right partners for Dubai before the end of this year. And as you know, the aircrafts move towards certification processes in the U.S. and Europe and worldwide, we hope that in the next three years, as you mentioned, we'll be launching the service um, uh, initially on a limited scale, but of course uh, it will grow as we go along. Yeah, extraordinary vision for the future uh, of mobility here in Dubai, here in the UAE. And I'm assuming, Ahmed, as well, uh, a lot of interest being generated by uh, other organisations, uh, other governments around the world who will be looking to Dubai to see just how successful this next stage is. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we like uh, to always think of Dubai as a, uh, as a testing ground for um, you know, new ideas, new mobility solutions. Um, of course, we don't go with any solution. We have to find the right solution that, as I said, fits with the uh, ecosystem of mobility in the city, integrates well with other modes of transport. Mm. Safety, of course, is, is never compromised, so we will never introduce a service, of course, unless we're 100% sure that it's safe. Affordability is also important. Uh, sustainability. Um, maybe I didn't mention that all of these air taxis eventually or initially as they start will be fully electric, um, very quiet as well, uh, you know, compared to helicopters and, uh, you know, other more... Uh, noisy modes of transport um, affordability as well eventually so initially maybe the service will be a little bit on the higher end in terms of price but as the technologies evolve as you know economies of scales are achieved in production etc we hope that this will be a fairly affordable service that will fit well within the ecosystem of mobility in Dubai. Ahmed what can you tell us about that potential price point I realize it's early days but what could we be looking at to start? It's, as you said, it's early days. It's, we haven't yet uh, signed with any partners yet. We, um, the technology, as any new technology, initially uh, probably the, the costs of productions are pretty high because production lines are not you know, as busy as they would be um, with economies of scale. But uh, we believe that it will be in the range of a limousine service in Dubai, slightly higher potentially initially, maybe more attractive to tourists initially who want to see the city of Dubai you know, from the skies. But definitely the objective of this service is not just to introduce a fancy service that will be used by very few people. Eventually, we feel that uh, you know, it will become an affordable mode of transport that uh, you know, people can use for everyday transport uh, and, and their daily mobility needs. Uh, we have to start somewhere. So, yes, initially it might be a little bit more costly, maybe, as I said, more attractive for tourists. Um, but definitely we expect that, uh, as we said, the service progresses, the demand for it increases. It's inevitable that the prices will also uh, go down as well. And how many um, trips will these vertipoids be able to handle? What will their capacity be? So the initial designs of the vertiports are accommodating for two takeoff and landing uh, you know, pods as well as four uh, you know, charging stations. These uh, aircrafts can, can, can fly uh, you know, for, for several hours, actually. So potentially there can also be intercity trips you know, to Abu Dhabi, to the East Coast, for example, which is also attractive for business uh, you know, people as well as for tourists. 
Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, we are being, uh, you know, fairly positive about the initial uh, demand. Um, we have chosen the locations carefully um, around uh, Dubai Airport in the Marina area, uh, you know, Palm Jumeirah, uh, and downtown. Those are the initial uh, locations for uh, for for the service, and we be- we believe that those are attractive areas, business hubs. Uh, tourism hubs that could generate, uh, you know, uh, considerable demand. What kind of rules need to be put in place, Ahmed? We've got road rules. Will we have low airspace rules? What needs to happen? RTA is, is, is fairly new to air, to air mobility, so mm-hmm. we're, we're more experienced, you know, with rail and, and, and buses and, uh, you know, other uh, forms of uh, road mobility. But um, luckily, we are working very closely with the aviation authorities in, in, in the country at federal level, as well as uh, the aviation authorities in Dubai. Um, yes, there will have to be rules that will have to be, uh, you know, relooked at uh, in order for such a service to to be um, uh, to be available to the public. Uh, we, as I said, we are working very closely with aviation authorities. Um, our local and federal avi- aviation authorities also have very close ties with uh, U.S. and European aviation authorities as well. So, as these aircrafts become certified in the U.S., for example, in Europe, um, there will probably be also uh, a fast path to certification within the, uh, the UAE. So um, it, it's, it's a fairly complex ecosystem of partnerships uh, at federal level, at local level, and of course with international partners. So we will, we will be partnering with um, an infrastructure uh, partner who will develop the infrastructure, the vertiports and the, the terminals for us, as well as with um, an operator um, uh, who will be basically responsible for operating and maintaining the service. Ahmed, you mentioned the the connection of the four main areas, as was announced yesterday, one near Dubai uh, International Airport, downtown Dubai, Palm Jumeirah, Dubai Marina, as you say, um, all very thriving uh, communities here in Dubai. Uh, I know that's for the initial launch. Could there be the scope for other Vertia ports around the city, maybe even around the Emirates? Yes, of course. And as I said, initially, the demand we feel is, is in those four areas, the demand will be, um, will be quite mm. uh, you know, reasonable as a starting point. But definitely, that's not the end of the story. Yes, uh, as we you know launch the service, uh, we will definitely be looking at demand. Uh, you know, also you know doing surveys to understand where potential demand is to expand the service. So yeah, with any uh, with any such service, you start small normally, but then definitely there's a vision to grow. And uh, as I said earlier, um, you know, as we launch the service, as the demand increases, as also the prices of production come down and operation as well. Um, we envision that this will become a fairly affordable mode of mobility that will be used by you know, people to move uh, within the city just like they use other modes today. And I'm sure that the technology itself is evolving with the air taxis themselves. Have we got an idea as to the range that these taxis will be able to achieve at this stage? Yes, I mean, definitely, as I said, they can go intercity trips. So it's not just within Dubai. Uh, we also plan to work with other Emirates to potentially launch you know, services that are inter-Emirates that could be attractive to both business people um, as well as tourists. Um, so range is not an issue. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a five-seater um, aircraft, so um, there will be a pilot uh, as well as four people. Eventually, of course, the technology will be heading to autonomous as well. We will not be launching uh, as autonomous initially, but uh, that's where the vision of uh, the leading players in the industry are. So initially with a pilot, eventually, um, you know, pilotless. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we carefully also are choosing the right aircraft for the city where there's enough capacity. We believe four people is a reasonable capacity. It's similar to a taxi, basically. And therefore, we're calling it an air taxi service. Very quickly, Ahmed, I'm going to sneak in there. Our metro stations are branded. Is there a revenue raising opportunity to brand these vertiports? 
Yes, I mean, as I said, we will be eventually signing with an infrastructure partner, and I'm sure the infrastructure partner will be looking for multiple sources of revenue in order for them to recoup, you know, the investment. So potentially, yes, naming rights, advertising, those are typical uh, revenues that are, can be generated from uh, infrastructure, as you said, similar to what we've done with the metro, yes. Ahmed, thank you so much indeed for your time this morning. Ahmed Barosian is the CEO of Public Transport Agency at the RTA. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where well, it is, of course, earnings season. A number of big names expected to report in the US today, including, I imagine, a number of those associated with the Super Bowl, such as Krispy Kreme. Here in the UAE, we are looking at the numbers that have come out uh, over the, the weekend and the start of the weekend, including those from the healthcare company Bajil Holdings. They've reported a jump of more than 50% in net profits for 2022. And we're very pleased to be joined by the chairman and founder of the company, Dr. Shamsir Vayalil. Let's look at that strong increase in net profits, more than 50% rise uh, for the annual year, 2022. What's behind it? You talk about a yield enhancement strategy that's paying off. What's actually happening on the ground? So uh, thank you for having me. First of all, good morning. Uh, we said in our uh, prospectus that we are all about a growth story. We have uh, done with all our major investments. Uh, many of our assets are on a ramp-up phase. So uh, we have walked through to the promise that we have made to our investors. Uh, our last hospital, which is Bajil Medical City, that we uh, invested in, which opened in 2020, uh, delivered a stellar performance. So it's all about the purpose of our hospitals. We have been talking about yield. We have been talking about complexity. We've been talking about uh, treatments that are not available locally, which are like bone marrow transplant. So the performance paid by itself, people post-COVID uh, starting to uh, realize that uh, product next home is better than traveling all the way. So this is all a combination and this is what has culminated out. So we didn't have any major investments to be done in the last year. Where we increased the number of doctors which are doing more complex care. So net, net, this is what has happened and this is what has transpired to better results. Are you suggesting that people here in the UAE and in the region are having operations and other work done locally rather than travelling abroad? So that's the uh, thing that has happened post-COVID where, uh, you know, getting a visa takes a lot of time uh, uh, and travelling with all those concerns has again started making people think for something closer to home. And, and this is not just for UAE, it's for the whole region. We are starting to see a bigger uptake uh, in patients coming from outside of the region because some of our complex treatments first time offered were all given to patients who came from outside. So uh, the trend is changing. Uh, people uh, uh, you know, like to come to Dubai, uh, UAE for that matter, and enjoy the hospitality. Uh, and it's so much closer, well-connected, and easier to reach as well. The visa processes are much easier, and, and they feel at home. So I think we have benefited out of uh, the number of patients coming in, and the patients were staying back for the same matter. What about the cost of those procedures? Yeah. Uh, inflation obviously hitting every sector around the world. What has it meant for you? So uh, the advantage what we have is uh, that uh, the prices of medicines and consumables are uh, mostly capped by the, uh, the regulators here. So the inflation has already uh, uh, been taken into account. But again, we have the uh, normal uh, staff salary inflationary pressures. But for us, the main advantage is that most of the staff has been hired on board and most of the equipment uh, purchases has already happened. So uh, it is not affected us so much in terms of uh, uh, other places uh, because we have a dollar peg as well. So these are the things that has helped us in terms of even hiring. So if you see our staff hire has increased from international markets 
people like to come back from places like UK and US where we promote research and uh, publication of uh, journals and international papers. So the combination of uh, ability to attract talent and, uh, you know, the larger market conditions have helped us. How much, though, are you having to pay more for that talent? So the salaries go up uh, uh, approximately 5 to 6 percent that's what we have seen and and i think uh, uh, it's always been a, a case of uh, overall uh, pressures that we have because most of our assets we have long term rentals we have uh, contracts maintenance which are uh, on a longish term so we always go for long term contracts and long term stuff so it's not very much affecting as so in other segments, but for us, it's more of a calculated. Is that 5 to 6% though being passed on to patients or more likely here insurance companies? Are you putting your consultation fees, your, your prices up? So for us, the prices are regulated. We have contracts with insurance companies which are uh, very well controlled by the, the regulator. There are different sets of uh, premiums for that matter. We have a very expensive uh, luxury premium for people to cover everything to the basic uh, 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 thick, uh, the local contracts, the, the, the blue-collar worker contracts, which are again subsidized by the government. So uh, for us, the price increase was on certain complex procedures, which were never done previously in this part of the world. So we have got some balance of increase and decrease, but the net blend was uh, pretty much okay for our business. And what impact is inflation having on your relationship with insurance companies? Are you seeing more pushback, um, more second opinions required, yes. uh, more so questions about procedures? It's always a love-hate relationship with insurance companies uh, because they want us and, and we need them. And it's a compulsory insurance market. So it has always been a, a fair uh, practice of uh, uh, each other's success because they want to keep the clients but at the same time, they want to offer better service. So it's a, a, a very balanced approach when it comes to uh, what we charge them in terms of the necessary investigations, in terms of uh, the ethical practice. So this has been a long-term relationship. So uh, we have built this trust over a period of time. Uh, and uh, I think that is uh, what has been uh, uh, serving good for us. Uh, COVID both gave and took away for the, the medical um, community, if we, if we take away responding to the actual pandemic itself and look at the business case. Um, a huge amount of, of testing, of course, brings in, in revenues, but at the same time, people weren't doing everyday um, operations and things that they could postpone. Um, how do your revenues now compare to where you were making money then? And what has the lack of testing now meant for your balance sheet? So for us, uh, COVID was always a one-off. So for some reason, we treated it like a one-off. We didn't want to put our eyeballs too much into COVID, but initially it was our calling. We have to support the governments. Uh, we have to do whatever it takes. Uh, we supported uh, international events in the country by doing a lot of testing. But we had a faced-down approach in COVID because the governments here were so proactive in providing the care. And, and we were, in fact, giving staff to the governments for uh, treating COVID. So... Much of the COVID was so much so in the governments and we were able to get back onto that what we are good at doing uh, in a span of six to eight months. So the first year of COVID, okay, we all were uh, serving COVID, but beyond that, it was mostly the government uh, sector which was doing COVID. Have you seen, though, a, 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 I mean, the, the drop in revenue from, from the lack of testing now is less required? No, because we moved into other specialities, right? So for us, it was more oncology, it was more trauma, it was more uh, rare uh, treatment uh, uh, procedures like bone marrow transplants. Uh, that was our focus. So that has really jumped the revenue significantly higher. 
Uh, 30 seconds left with you, so very quickly. These are your first annual results as a publicly listed company. How does that change the, the pressure on you? No, we have always enjoyed the pressure. Uh, and I think uh, we need to stick to the story. We don't want to uh, over-promise and under-deliver. We've been uh, always uh, on the ground. We are existing for our patients. That has not moved. So uh, things pretty much have stayed the same except for the board and for the, for the committees that we have formed. But it's more advisory and more transformational, if you ask me. Uh, Ten seconds. Where will we see you expand into next? Big expansion recently into Saudi. Saudi is uh, one of the promises that we have made and we have uh, uh, started the contracts already. So we are on the ground. And Dr. Shamsir Vayalal is the chairman of Bajil Holdings, the healthcare company, speaking about their annual results. Thanks for your time. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's have a bit more focus then on all things Super Bowl, if we can. Uh, obviously, apologies to all those that uh, are trying their best to avoid the result uh, so they can get home and watch it a little later on today, if it was a little too early for you today. It's nigh on impossible these days anyway, in the advent of social media media. Uh, But if you are one of those people that are trying to stay away from the results, a little spoiler alert, because uh, this is what happened just a few hours ago. Make it four seconds left. Here we go. Hurts has all day. Now some rushers come. Going to throw it as far as his arm can take it, which is well short. And the Kansas City Chiefs have won Super Bowl 57. Yeah, so congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs uh, overcoming the Philadelphia Eagles in a thrilling finale. We're going to talk all things Super Bowl now, uh, from the sport to the business to a few of the chats are going on around the stadium down in Arizona uh, with the partner and head of sports and events Middle East at Squire Patton Boggs Dubai office. Steve Bainbridge joining us live here in the studio. Uh, Steve, first and foremost, got to say thank you to you for foregoing the final 10 minutes or so of the game to come and speak to us. That just shows my level of commitment to Business Breakfast, Tom and Brandy as well. Yeah, I I missed the final kick, which I heard was very dramatic. Uh, Dramatic indeed. In fact, the final was dramatic. Let's deal with the sporting side of things, if you like. It was a close-run thing, two great teams going head-to-head, and a lot of the reports coming through saying, uh, yeah, this one will live long in the memory. Yeah, I think that's a big point because it's uh, the match itself hasn't always lived up to billing and expectations there have often been blowouts but we had the the two teams with the most winning records this year both were 14 and 3 each was ranked number one seed in their division coming in so we had the two conference champions coming in um, with the number one seed and we got a game that was one score difference uh, and decided with eight seconds left so we can't ask more from the actual show on the field. And also, a lot of the chat leading into this one was the squaring up of the two best quarterbacks in, the, in, the, in, in, in America at the moment. And both of them delivered as well. Looked like Mahomes might have been injured early on halfway, but then just showing the Superman elements that he possesses as well to come back and to guide his team forward. Absolutely right. I mean, I think this was as scripted, as you said. Jalen Hurts ran in for for more touchdowns. I think he had three himself. Uh, Mahomes, who, you know, it's early in his career, but already discussions about him being a a transcendent generational product uh, when we've had Tom Brady just retire is out there. This is the kind of 
of thing that puts him back squarely in that discussion. So presumably there will be more in the future for him, but this one being a Cinderella finish, him potentially carrying a significant injury and still managing to pull it off, these are the seeds of greatness that we expect from our heroes, and, and he lived up to billing today. Right, let's talk about the business of Super Bowl as well, because, yeah, we've got the sport on the field that uh, Steve and I could talk to till the cows come home. But then, of course, there are uh, so many other elements to this, and none more so than that alternative set of eyeballs. It's not just football fans that are tuning in for Super Bowl at the moment, given the extraordinary sort of marketing of this, of not just a sporting event, but also an entertaining event. Oh, and I think that's the key, Tom. You know, we've spoken about this before, and it's you will always have the core fans, and Sundays are Sundays in the U.S., and Monday Night Football, and those products are expanding. But the core fans are not the ones that are targeted on Super Sunday. Uh, we're talking about 100 million plus eyeballs. We're looking at um, 30 to 60 second commercials, um, $7 million a slot for those. So it is target, targeting that part of the demographic that probably only tune in whilst they're at a Super Bowl party. It's a big event. The country shuts down. So it's that additional range of demographic that can be reached by key advertisers on this special day. And what does that? What does the, this year's advertising tell us about the sort of the state of the, 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 not just the country but the state of the sport as well? One thing that a lot of analysts have been talking about is the lack of crypto advertisers this year. Well, you know, as I understand, and this is not from uh, client experience; it's just from the media. I understand there were four to five crypto advertisers teed up. We know what's happened in that sector, and they didn't come through. But there was clearly no shortage of fitting the bill on these. I mean, we see the usual standouts. There's the automotive sector, there's the snack sector, the insurance sector, and a lot of promotional entertainment. So you have movie premieres being previewed and that sort of thing. So the usual suspects were there. There was no shortage. What we can see is that year on year, the increase is there. So we're looking at high single digits in terms of percentage. I think Last year, they were 6% up. This year, it's about 8% for that slot uh, and no difficulty filling them. Mm. Um, no difficulty uh, convincing celebrities as well to appear in any of those commercials this year. Well, I mean, that's partly what's mind-boggling when you think about it. That we talk about the cost of the advertising slot, but as you rightly say, some of the celebrity appearances and the production effort that's gone into making the commercials, so you have a significant spend that in, in many cases, when you talk about the, the plethora of celebrities we're dealing with, the cost of manufacturing, producing, and paying the fees for the celebrities will exceed that. So it just goes to show that, that reaching that demographic and, and in this special time slot, obviously advertisers consistently think it's worthwhile. And we hear different matrices, but the thought is that even a single commercial will pay for itself at that 7 million slot with low production values. But others say that, you know, that the good, quote unquote, good, memorable commercials that we'll be talking to each other at the office about um, will have a sort of three to four times return on investment of the average ones. So th there is a noticeable uptick mm. in uh, marketing, sales, distribution. And now, of course, too, it's becoming more of a global event. We see a lot of international rights. So there's a knock on factor and some of those figures won't be known for months to come afterwards. Talk about the global appeal of the game, if you like. You're right, it is a global event. Here we are, you and I, in Dubai, talking about something that's happening over in the Arizona uh, desert at the moment. Um, uh, and yet we are seeing huge efforts from NFL 
to spread the word of football and by using the sport as that platform, obviously generating more eyeballs on the final event of the season. Is that working for NFL at the moment? I think it is. And we see that. We see the investment, you know, with games being held abroad. They were once only exhibition games. We're now seeing regular season games that will count towards the, the playoff drive being held and, and staged quite routinely in Europe. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that a team sometime soon may be located in Europe, uh, potentially the UK. Um, but I think, yes, we're seeing the growth and the product is actually quite different. Mm. So I think it, there's not really a rival piece for it. And when you look at the season with only typically 16, this year 17 games, it is a, a finite product, unlike something, for example, like American Baseball, which has a sort of 162-game season. It is an event. There are the tailgate parties. It's uh, tribal, but generally run with a, a in a very good spirit. You rarely see fan problems happening at yeah. NFL games. It's a family event. Um, so, yes, I think that is appealing. There are a number of... of uh, events and aspects of it, including, of course, the athleticism, but that family and entertainment piece. I mean, you know, we've not yet spoken about the halftime show. Some people tune in for that alone. Uh, talking of that halftime show, yeah, all sorts of reports coming about uh, Rahana's return uh, to uh, live gigs just nine months after having a child. And, of course, took the opportunity as well to say that she got another one uh, just on the way. Uh, but interesting as well. A lot of people praise it. And I wanted to ask you about this because the whole thing of raising the bar it seems like uh, this year's Super Bowl 57 has pretty much, you know, nailed it in terms of the sports side of things, the entertainment side of things, the advertising side of things. And so it must be therefore difficult to sort of, how do you follow that? And looking ahead to Super Bowl 58, I mean, it helps that it's in Las Vegas, I suppose, next year. Of course, there's, <laughs> there's no town quite like Vegas. But that's it. It's these incremental tweaks and twitches. So, you know, as you say, it's a product. We've come out of COVID. We've done that successfully now. I think the NFL will be very happy with this product. But there are tweaks and changes. So this year was actually the final year of a long-term uh, broadcast deal. So we're now 2023. This season will be starting the first year of an 11-year deal. So there's a little tweak there. Also, this was the, uh, the first year of the new stadium and venue selection process. So there are little tweaks that go on along the way. Obviously, the on-field entertainment is key. The halftime show is always dynamic. And it's, you know, a lot of people remark on the fact that it's done without a fee. So, uh, Rihanna, congratulations on, on Bambino number two coming up. But she didn't get paid for this. But it's, at, it's, it's achieved a place in society now where performing, even being asked to perform at the Super Bowl, has such an upside that there's no doubt that the finances will follow that. Well, the Kansas City Chiefs are celebrating and they're building something of a legacy at the moment as well. Congratulations to all the Chiefs fans out there. Commiserations to all the Eagles fans out there. And a huge thanks uh, to our special guest here in the studio, Steve. Thanks so much indeed for your time. Um, Thank you. Sleep now. Can you go back? You can go back. Uh, well, I'll go and rewatch that kick. I'll, I've got to find a clip somewhere. Social media will say, me. Steve Bainbridge joining us live in the studio. Thanks for watching D for your time. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.